Welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined here today uh, by a longtime dear friend, uh, Waldemar Schmidt. He's on the Talk Executive Committee, and he and I have been hanging out and dialoguing about uh, issues related to the human condition, psychiatry, uh, psychology, the unified approach, et cetera, uh, for what is almost almost 10 years now, uh, you know, so like 2013 or so. Uh, Waldemar, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So Waldemar is a fellow professor like myself, or a retired professor, actually of pathophysiology. Um, uh, Waldemar, can you share a little bit about your background uh, and your professional interests? Thank you, Greg. Um, I would like to, um, one of the things I have to note is that I had uh, something other than the usual upbringing as a child. Mm. Um, huh. I was I was born in 1941, and my father was um, a chemical engineer at a oil refinery, and at that time was one of the country's experts in uh, catalytic cracking. Hmm. And as it turned out, he got transferred to um, Fair, uh, not Fairbanks, but uh, Whitehorse, which hmm. is actually in Canada, mm -hmm. in the Yukon Territory to build a refinery. This was a time when um, the Japanese were thinking or perhaps already had invaded the uh, Aleutian Islands. Mm -hmm. And so um, America and Canada were concerned about spreading of their forces onto the mainland. Right. So one of the things they didn't do was to build a road. And another thing they need to do was to provide uh, gasoline and oil products and all that. Mm for the vehicles to use that road. Mm -hmm. So I was about, uh, I guess, um, two going on three when I got transferred there. After the war ended, um, my dad got transferred around the country, uh, mm -hmm. pardon me, around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to uh, Bahrain Island, which is in the Persian Gulf, and then uh, to Holland, and then back to the Bahrain Island. And uh, while I was there that second time, I went to high school in Beirut, Lebanon. Wow. And then finally ended up um, my last year of high school in New York State, actually in Bronxville, just outside of New York City. Uh -huh. And that was a huge change for me wow. after being in a world that was principally other nations, uh, many of the nations were either recovering from a horrible war or were actually, if not autocratic, were actually despotic in their mm. political nature. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I came to the United States where there was TV, which we didn't have. And um, I was immediately entranced by it. I got over that after a while. Mm. But what this did was I entered the American world, if you will, with a totally different mindset. Hmm. I really don't know today exactly what that mindset was, mm -hmm. but it was different. I knew that. Uh, I then went to um, Oregon State College, now Oregon State University, um, which was an even bigger cultural shock. Hmm. So I left uh, the domain of New York City Mm -hmm. which was pretty cosmopolitan to 
the far west, which was pretty much not very cosmopolitan. Hmm. And I was really, in retrospect, I was adrift. I didn't know where I belonged or mm -hmm. what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But eventually, it became apparent to me, um, mostly in retrospect, that what I was interested in was living things. Mm. I grew up in a world where the interest was the physical world, mm -hmm. oil refining, mm. um, oil production, that sort of thing. That's all about geology, right? which I found interesting, but kind of not to the point. Mm. And in retrospect, I recognized that really what I was interested in was living things. And so... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would go spearfishing in the Persian Gulf and I would see fish big enough that I did not dare spear. Mm. They would <laughs> drag me off into the depths. Um, and that kind of persisted. I wandered the desert looking for strange animals. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Once saw an elusive poisonous snake that lives on that island. Mm. Um, very elusive. In fact, uh, nobody knows how poison it is, but it's said to be poisons. Hmm. So what I ended up with in college was finally deciding upon biology. Okay. Mm. I tried the business world and mm -hmm. found that boring. I tried the engineering world and found that beyond my mathematical skills. Hmm. And I did find a place for myself in biology, mm. particularly zoology. Okay. And that led to going to medical school. For mm -hmm. some reason or other, I was accepted and um, mm. went through four years there, plus two more years for a doctorate in anatomy. And I was really intrigued by what I realize now was, what is it like to be a human being? Hmm. Mm -hmm. I had this opportunity in all those foreign lands to see human being in different stages and different phases mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. see the physical effects of that great war mm. to see the physical and emotional effects of um, autocracy and mm -hmm. tyranny. Mm -hmm. um, I remember we would drive by what was the police fort on Bahrain Island. And every Monday they would have people out there to be whipped. Huh. They had a big stake in the ground and they got tied to it and they got whipped. Wow. And as a child, that was really strange because the world I lived in was basically the white Western world. Mm -hmm. The world that I existed within was this autocratic world of non-white people. Hmm. And at the time, I really didn't realize the difference that was having on me, hmm. but it did have a difference. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to medical school, I really felt like learning about the human being was probably the most important thing because while the physical world and physics and astronomy and all that are very interesting, mm -hmm even more interesting is life mm. because that appears to have come out of matter mm -hmm. somehow. And amongst life, the most 
interesting, complex creature was the human being. Mm. So anyway, I was going to were medical you, school. Were you in, were you, well, I'm just curious, because actually you, you and I haven't spoken too much about this. Um, were you influenced by any particular uh, philosophical worldview, psychoanalysis, any, any kind of uh, frame of reference on the human, uh, a biophysiological view? Was there, were there any particular kind of frames you were bringing to bear that you recall at this point in your life that were influential for you? Or was it more kind of a, a eclectic um, you know, view from multitude of different perspectives? I, I think in retrospect, it was the, the different ways in which people exist and are forced to exist and I think that was really brought to a point by going to New York State to finish high school and then mm -hmm. Oregon to okay. do undergraduate work. Because there were at least three different ways in which people existed. I'm not suggesting I had this insight back mm -hmm. then. This right, is right. Okay. all in retrospect. Um, and there didn't seem to be anything which was confluent other than they were human beings. Hmm. And I, I think in retrospect, that's probably what really captured my mind. Hmm. Um, and learning about zoology, about life, that was fascinating because I, I would not only recognize that there were animals and different kinds of animals, but I, would, I came to understand that they had different forms and different functions. Right. And going to medical school, I saw that form and function really came together and that they came together in this one package we call a human being. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when I read that article by Nagel about what is it like to be a bat? Yep. I thought, wow, I've been wondering all along, what is it like to be a human being? <laughs> I really don't. I, I don't think I can explain what it is like to be a human being. Huh. I have this menagerie of experiences that mm. the only focal point seems to be the involvement of human beings, huh. principally as individuals. Mm -hmm. So I got entranced by the science, mm -hmm. came from a science background. Uh, my dad had been to MIT and had a master's degree and had a very science-oriented family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I got entranced by that, and I really enjoyed that and ended up in pathology because for me, as I studied pathology, the things I learned in physiology and anatomy and surgery and medicine and obstetrics all seemed to flow together. Mm -hmm. It became a package. Mm -hmm. uh, the package called the human being now became very much more complicated, but understandable. Mm. The bits and pieces made sense. Mm -hmm. They work together. This is a package. Well, that worked for a good many years for me. But by the time I got to the end of my career, my question about what is it like to be a human being had undergone a transformation. Okay. Now it was... What is it like to be an effective human being? Ah. Hmm. Which 
I'd like to say I realized that all of a sudden I really didn't. It took years and years. Um, but interestingly, it occurred at the end of my internship, a, a rotating internship, because I wanted to go through all the different branches. Right, right. And I was trying to decide upon a residency, and I decided upon surgery to begin with. Okay. But at the time, I was struggling with, for some reason, I didn't know, psychiatry. Mm. And that was a hard struggle for me because psychiatry then was very Freudian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Freudian world was very confusing to me. It didn't make sense in the medical science world. Right. It was a totally different language. And I, it was very it was impossible, not just very difficult, but impossible for me to translate into the medical science language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was confused and common sense seemed to tell me that psychiatry was confused as well, come to mm. think of it. <laughs> so anyway, I went in surgery for a year and uh, no, that really wasn't the right place for me. So I went back to basically anatomy, mm -hmm. but what the British call pathologic anatomy mm. is anatomical pathology to the United okay. States mm. and spent a good number of years. And I found that as I would learn how organ systems failed mm -hmm. and how diseases affected them, I began to understand more and more about the package that we call a human being mm. and the world within which it exists, hmm. that it was, that each package was not an island, if you will, in and of itself. It existed within the sea we call the world mm. and it interacted with that world, mm. um, usually for the better, but often with tragedy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I came to the end of my uh, academic and you, career and I got you bored. You specialized with, in the kidney and liver, right? Or primarily? No, actually, I specialized in what's called obstetric and gynecologic pathology. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. um, that was another field I thought about going into OB-GYN. Uh -huh. um, hmm. But I didn't because I'm really not a morning person. <laughs> and lots of babies get born <laughs> at a time when I do best when I'm asleep. Okay. Another good reason why I didn't do good in surgery. Surgeons get up and make rounds at five o'clock in the morning. And mm. my heart isn't really beating full <laughs> speed at five o'clock in the morning. Anyway, so I began to face this question without really realizing it. What is it like to be an effective human being? And by effective, I mean, how do I interact with my world and my other human beings in the most effective manner. My life history was such that I was able to see a bunch of different ways in which people interact. And some of them were extreme opposites. Yes. Lots of freedom and individuality here in Oregon, for instance, and very little in autocratic dictatorial countries. But the human beings existed in both. Mm -hmm. So I decided I really haven't been as effective as I am happy with. I think I better learn about how does the mind part of the human being work? Mm. 
because that, that sort of got put aside. I learned neuropathology. Um, I did a lot of reading in self-help and found out that that, for me at least, was basically feel-good stuff. Mm-hmm. If you do this or eat this or live like this, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't make sense. That's not mm-hmm. the way <laughs> the world worked as I saw it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I began to read, I came across this little green book uh, by a psychologist in uh, Edinburgh, I think it was, maybe Glasgow. It was about the personality types, the, mm. the big five. Mm-hmm. And that immediately made sense to me that, okay, mm. here is part of how the human being works. That makes sense. It is part of the same language as the medical science language that I understood. Mm -hmm. So after I did that, I thought, well, that's really good, but there's more to us than personality. We have lots of other behavioral aspects as well. Mm -hmm. So I started reading in um, psychology. Mm -hmm. And by then, an important thing had happened the important thing was the internet. Mm. When I finished my academic career, the, the Google was really big and that really changed everything. I could have answers to my questions before I left my desk. Right. Well, I turned to the internet for this psychology study. Mm. And what it meant was I didn't have to be I didn't have to live a monk lifestyle in order to study psychology. I didn't have to go off somewhere and live in a cell, you know, with a straw mat. I could do this at home and I could do it virtually anytime. Plus I could access original articles. Mm. So yeah, I learned to use the internet and learned a lot about psychology and I was making progress when, Suddenly, I can't remember the exact source, but I came across something called the tree of knowledge. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder what that is. Well, by then I had also learned that um, there were things like Wikipedia. So (laughs) I went to Wikipedia and yes, indeed, there's a page on the tree of knowledge. So I read that and I found out that this is big. This is way bigger than personality types. This is bigger than I am ready for. Mm. So I wrote an email to a guy named Greg Henriquez. And I said, I can't remember what I said, but it was basically, this is big. Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) And I got this, this wonderful book, which I have right here on my desk. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I read the book and then I really started to delve into psychology in a very serious fashion. Mm. I mean, it was serious before, but it was structured now. Mm -hmm. It had a structure. I had a language that I could use. I, I could no longer talk about enzymes and pathways and pathogens and time courses uh, in and of themselves, they were part of something much bigger. And when it came to the human mind, 
they didn't really apply in a one-to-one fashion. Mm-hmm. It soon became apparent to me that neurophysiology, as I was reading about it, was a primary neurophysiology, that is, cellular neurophysiology. Right. And of course, cellular neurophysiology can't explain things like consciousness or sight or hearing, those sorts of things, because you can talk about how neurons speak to each other, either by electrical impulses or by compounds. But that didn't really explain how all this worked together. So anyway, it led me to the tree of knowledge, led me to Greg Enriquez, and eventually to the Tree of Knowledge Society. And during that course of study, I began to turn back towards psychiatry and find out, try to find out, okay, what are these guys really talking about? Mm. What is a personality disorder? And I'd read a lot about that. Um, It it comes up in other medical uh, terms. Uh, For instance, people with personality disorders have problems with uh, substance abuse and problems with substance abuse leads to uh, problems with kidney and liver and brain, et cetera. So I I knew it wasn't one-to-one. That part wasn't enough. Um, It also led me to learn about, learn more about what do people do when they do psychotherapy, both the therapist and the person undergoing therapy. Let me pause sure, you there for a second and, and just sort of give, first off, thank you, Baltimore. It's a very, uh, it's a nice to hear your narrative. I didn't know some of those pieces. It's good to, good to hear. And let me, um, just say some of that really warms my heart for the following reason, okay? Because, and, and, I, and I want to try to convey this, and I think you just embodied it in a particular way. Here's what I want to, uh, so in my current book, I'm you know about 80% through the current book, um, and it's called The Problem of Psychology and Its Solution, okay? Uh, and you know a, a little bit about this. Um, but one angle in which I'm introducing the book around is to contrast the um, current mainstream academic, psychological organization and structure and institutionalized approach with what I'm offering in, the, in, in this new approach, okay? And the mainstream approach is a methodological behaviorism. That's the technical definition for it. Methodological behaviorism is the approach that psychology takes, which is, hey, we're gonna apply the methods of science to observable, measurable behaviors, and then try to use the methods to crack the code of whatever it is that we're talking about, okay? Um, And so that's really what the psychology that you encountered across, say, Big Five's a great example. We're just gonna study this empirically, and then we can enter into whatever this is, this X, mind mental process empirically, okay? The problem with that is that everybody enters the field from any number of different doorways of understanding. 
Okay. And the doorways that you enter through and the frames that you bring then create all sorts of ambiguity with regards to, okay, you might construct a really interesting study like big five. Okay. Here you have these five, but what actually is a trait theoretically relative to, and is that all we are, are traits? And then of course the answer, as you said, is no, but then how do then traits that were achieved by this method fit to say psychodynamics? Okay. The field has no capacity. The empirical method alone will never allow the field to sort out that interrelation, okay? The, the, the field will never do that. The reason is because real science and or hard science, physics, chemistry, biology, is really anchored to a shared ontology, okay? Like, like physics with Newton figured out, at least originally, hey, there's a space-time field that matter operates in and moves. And that's what we're studying. That's the ontology. Now, of course, we figured out how oh, the world's more complicated than Newton, but that was a great ontology. And then it set the stage for an ontology of chemistry. Okay. And then Darwin comes along and we get an, a connection to the ontology of biology, which people were clear about, oh, it's living stuff. And then that created continuity. The unified theory shared through the tree of knowledge says, here's the ontology of psychology. Okay, so this is actually what it is that we're actually referencing, okay? There's a mental dimension that's at the level of animal, and then there is a culture person dimension at the level of human person. Those are two different domains of behavior and mental process that operate in different fields. We have to sort them out, and the unified theory says, oh, we can build a metaphysics across the tree of knowledge, specify the ontology of whether it's animal, mental, or cultural person, and create a meta theory through behavioral investment theory and justification that actually specifies what the field is. That's, the, that's why it's qualitatively different in relation. And if you listen, if the audience member listens to you, all I'm trying to say is the way Waldemar thinks about the world, <laughs> which is very sophisticated, but in some ways in a very concrete way, like that's why psychoanalysis and other things, you want to be able to specify with precision what you're looking at. Um, that, that's the, the bottom line is that's, I just wanted to sort of clarify, yeah, this is a pretty different approach because it's ontologically. It says, hey, here's the field. This is how we specify it. This is how we can define it. So. Thank you. That, that's a, a more elegant way of saying what I was trying to say. And I think what occurred to me over a period of time as I did these studies was that there is a coherence between these different aspects. They, they make sense. It is possible to fit them together. You have to do it, as you point out, with an appropriate ontology and epistemology. But it can be done. So... For instance, when I, I was pondering what happens when psychotherapy occurs, mm. and I had heard, read all the things about transference, well, not all the things, but <laughs> about transference and countertransference and uh, those sorts of things. And for me, it just didn't click into a picture. Yes, that's an, that's an important aspect of what's going on but it's not the fundamental aspect. And so one day I was out walking my dog and 
it occurred to me that what people were doing in psychotherapy, both the therapist and the person being undergoing therapy, they were working on basically on their philosophy of life, their worldview, how they saw things. But that led me back to, well, how come it doesn't work with all people then? What the heck is going on here? So I, I had to rethink, what about mental illness? What is that anyway? Mm -hmm. And the simplistic way that I have come to understand is that there are people who have a brain which doesn't work correctly. No matter what they do or think or feel, it's not going to work correctly. And there's a range of abnormalities. That, so we might take um, schizophrenia as an example of that. There's a brain. It's got a, a variety of ways in which schizophrenia is expressed. But you, you can't, by means of modern psychotherapy, get rid of schizophrenia. That's intrinsic to that individual. We don't know why. Maybe we will sometime. But for the person who has, say, a personality disorder, yes, you could help them to change their ways, if you will. What are you changing? Are you changing their personality? The, the whole term personality disorder, I really find distasteful. I, I don't think that's a good term because that person has a personality. There are other people with that personality and not all of them are neurotic. Mm -hmm. So what's going on? Well, for me at least, the person who has a neurosis, but not a psychosis, is a person who has a brain which is able to work correctly. It functions appropriately, whatever those functions are. We don't know all of them. But they aren't using it appropriately. Right. So now that began to make sense that, gee, these things are beginning to funnel down to what seem to be basic principles. And that's what I encountered in dealing with pathology, that, gee, things like uh, malaria were really mysterious diseases. In fact, the name malaria means bad air, mm. because at one time people said you have to close the windows at night to keep out the bad air. Uh. So close the windows and fewer people got malaria. Some did, but fewer people. Yeah. But they still got malaria. Eventually, we came to find out that it wasn't the bad air we were letting in. We were letting in the mosquitoes, carrying an organism, which didn't do us any favors. Right. We still call it malaria because that's probably the easiest thing. And there's a variety of malarians. But now I began to see this in terms of psychology and psychiatry and psychotherapy. I began to see that there are some common themes here. When we look at the individual person, it's not enough to look at personality types. Uh -huh. We have to understand more about how do their feelings work? How do thoughts work? How do thoughts and feelings work together? I'm of this school, for instance, that thought and feeling is a package. Uh -huh. That is, if you have a thought, 
there, you have an emotion associated with it, an affect associated. Even if it, the affect is zero, I don't care about that thought. It means nothing to me. That's a, an affect. Yep. Most of us have strong feelings about thoughts, about, say, for instance, birth control. Mm-hmm. There are strong feelings on both sides. So to find out how to be a, a maximally effective human being, we needed to be to understand what is it to be a human being? How do we take care of ourselves and those mm-hmm. around us? Mm-hmm. And how do we interact to do that? We have to know how do we interact? Mm-hmm. What is it that drives us to interact or not interact? And lately I've written to you, I know about meaning because I've been writing about communication ever since our last meeting of the tree of knowledge society, because it seemed to me that the underlying principle that we're going to apply to overcome the digital meaning crises is communication. Mm. How do we communicate? Why? And what's going on in us and the other person while we communicate. Mm -hmm. And, And in doing that, it became apparent to me that you use a, a you refer to a term the, the soul of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, I began to ask the question: Just what is the soul of the person? We know what the brain is. We know what connectomes are. Hmm. We know what personality is, at least in general. Um, and I began to list the things that I thought that they were. And one of the things that came out is meaning. Yeah. That brought me back to the digital crisis. One of them is the meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. Why do we seek meaning? Is there something about us that's built in? Well, simplistically, I I thought, well, maybe there is. Maybe we have meaning and meaning is important to us because those people who didn't reflect upon the meaning of something in the early days when there were saber-toothed tigers Mm -hmm. Uh, they didn't look at what is the meaning of that brush moving. Mm. And they ended up being a meal for the saber-toothed tiger. In other words, their genes were lost from the pool. Whereas the people who had this ability to focus upon meaning, their genes proliferated and became part of what it is to be a human being. Mm. That leads us to the understanding that we as human beings have to have a meaning. We have to understand the world in which we exist, how the world is composed, how does it work? How do we work within it? How do we relate to others in the world? And how do we relate to the physical world? So that's meaning. But we human beings tend to get stuck on method. Hmm. And our method is what we do every day. We get up and we wash our face and we eat breakfast and then we go do this and we go do that and we check our email. And when we get to do that, we're comfortable. Hmm. But when we're doing that, when we're being comfortable, we aren't necessarily thinking about what we are doing. That's the metacognition, the idea of 
metacognition to me is, what do you think about what you're thinking? Why do you think what you think? How do you think what you think? Um, where are you when you think about what you think? But mostly, what do you think about what you're thinking? What do your thoughts mean to you? And that these the folks who, like myself, who are undergoing psychotherapy or who are psychotherapists like yourself, what they are principally doing is teaching people to be mindful so that they will be aware of what they are doing from day to day, from minute to minute, what is occurring in their lives, reflecting upon what it means to them, and then deciding, is that really what I want it to mean? Yeah. Do I really want to scratch my key along a guy's car? Am I going to get something out of that? Something that I want? No, I don't think so. He's just a jerk. I'm going to let it be. But if I don't do that, then, yeah, I feel good scratching my key up alongside his Porsche. It's a very expensive car, and it did a very expensive deed. And as long as I don't get caught, that's okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But if I think about what I'm doing, then I have to think about, well, what if somebody does that to my car? It's not a Porsche, but it is my car. It matters if I get caught. So it matters that I think about what I'm thinking. And what all this has meant for me so far is that the, the tree of knowledge gave me access to an understanding about languages and how the language of science does extraordinarily well explaining the cosmic world, uh -huh. all the way from what we think was the Big Bang. Maybe not in great detail, but lots of detail about Pretty physics, well. A, uh -huh. oil drilling, making and using electricity. Uh -huh. um, but it really doesn't serve me well when I try to discuss, explain, or understand things like meditation and mindfulness and metacognition. Uh -huh. The words just aren't there. It's not related to enzymes, at least not yet. It's not related to specific atoms. It's not related to the uh, ability of mind to see vision uh -huh. or to hear things, at least not directly. It has to be explained in other terms. Uh -huh. I can't use the words connectome to adequately explain those things. So... The tree of knowledge gave me this new language, this new perspective that there is a cultural world, a cultural human being. And that, of course, led me to the understanding that, gee, we human beings are evolving. Uh -huh. I am different than what my father was and my great-grandfather was. Uh, we live in different worlds, if you will. Um, why is that? Well, it's because we have these mental abilities, this brain, this ability to feel and think and think about what we think, uh -huh, uh -huh. And to meditate and to be mindful, that allows us to create a way of doing things, a culture. 
And that culture is capable of change. Because as we continue to think, we see that, oh, there are some flaws in our way of dealing, our life system, our, um, our worldview. We need to change that. Right. That culture means, that change means that culture has evolved. And it evolves, as you pointed out so well, far faster than our physical evolution. And we're having a hard time dealing with that because we don't fully understand the impact of uh, the meaning crisis in, in general, the digital identity crisis. We're, we're struggling to come to grips with that. Right. And, and what the tree of knowledge gives us is a way to say, okay, I understand you're struggling with this. Here's a way of looking at it. It's not saying you must look at it this way. <laughs> you have to believe this. Here's a way of looking at it. It's up to you if you wish to. I can help you to understand what I think it means, but ultimately you will understand it. It's up to you. So looking back on my life, on my childhood, I can see how those experiences with different ways of human beings existing in and of the world led me to this point. Mm -hmm. It was, it, at least in retrospect, it seems like a reasonable narrative. It didn't quite happen. It didn't happen quite as smoothly as <laughs> I have portrayed. Sure. But something like that happened. Yeah. All right. You said something, you've said a couple of things in there that I really want to just Highlight, because these are some of the, uh, I tell the story of, uh, I don't know if you remember this, I, I, you may, um, but you and I were talking about pathology at one point, um, and you said, and this may be why I associate with liver and kidney, I say, yeah, as a pathologist, one of the first things that you, they were, sh you were shown when you were learning pathology, what's a healthy liver and what's a healthy kidney, okay, and then that was the reference point. Uh, so you'd have a model of what an effective or healthy thing was. And then it's the deviations from that, that you can learn a lot about pathology. Okay. Um, and then you said, but in psychiatry, when you go to psychiatry, there's no optimal, healthy, effective person with all its specificity, right? It's just symptoms versus their absence. And then it's like, well, what does an effective, healthy person look like? And then actually there isn't a, really a prototype for that. Uh, do you remember telling me that? Uh, uh, I, I do. And, and it was perplexing to me because medicine is, modern medicine is based upon understanding what the normal is, whether you're treating somebody with digitalis for heart disease, you're talking about how do I modify what is normal because right now it's not. And I, I came across... Um, the character strengths and virtues book. And, and I thought, Oh, well, maybe this mm -hmm. describes mm -hmm. what it is like to function as a normal, if you will, mm -hmm. or normative, effective and efficient human being. But it really didn't. <laughs> it describes in great detail, I might add what it is that's going on if you are normal. Mm. So 
I have this description of what are the features that might be attributed to a normal person. I have descriptions of what are the features of what it's like to be an abnormal person. If it's really abnormal, we say they're psychotic. If it's kind of abnormal, we say they're neurotic and recognize that it's a spectrum. But how do I put these two together? There's, you know, how do these fit? They don't fit together right. at all. Right. And hmm. what, the, what the tree of knowledge brought me to is, yeah, they do fit together. They fit together in a different way. They fit together by saying that there is such a thing as a normal human being. We know a lot about upbringing. We know a lot about development. Think about um, Darcy Narvez's work in particular. We know a lot about what are features of a human being that is functioning well. Um, we don't yet know all of the underlying principles that are being involved, but we're learning them. For instance, the, the, the British um, structure and function study by the, the uh, British Psychological Association. That mm. Power threat meaning framework? The power threat meaning framework basically is that underlying fundamental problem for those who have a brain that could work mm -hmm. if you would use it properly. Mm -hmm. Because in applying my worldview, I'm applying a whole host of assumptions. If I have made the wrong assumptions, gee, it's not too surprising that I got the wrong outcome mm -hmm. or a less than desirable outcome. And so what the Brits are saying is, gee, you know, th what this really comes down to is power is exerted over an individual in one of many ways. That individual, for whatever the reasons may be, and there are many reasons, interpret that as a threat and uh, put, puts a meaning on that threat and then decides how they will respond to that threat. Yep. So if I get a spanking for lighting matches, mm -hmm. then that's a physical threat. And I probably will think twice about playing with matches again. That's a good thing. But if I, if I do that with my child on something psychological, how do I know what they have decided? Mm -hmm. Maybe they have decided dad is an ogre. Yep. My father is a beast. And if I have other behavior like that, that might be a good decision. Totally. But that's the way to decide to, to live their lives. Powerful people are ogres. So I see what the Brits did there is bring together these fields of normal human being, abnormal human being, because of, and that's what happens in pathology. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's so powerful, the, the hepatology description you can look side by side uh, in a, in a two view microscope, a normal liver section here and an abnormal liver section here. And you might not be able to write off, describe how the abnormal is abnormal, but you will see immediately, mm -hmm. this is different than this. Yep. Then you spend four years learning. How is that different? <laughs> Why is it different? Yep. How do we make it stop being different? 
what made it be, et cetera, et cetera. Beautiful. I think we're at the, I think we're at the, the doorstep of doing that with mental illness. Yep. And I'm not really crazy about the term mental illness, but mental dysfunction, say. Well, or, we, uh, the, me and Jeffrey Smith and Marv Goldfried, uh, and then initially with Mike Mescolo, um, we had a two-part webinar that I'm actually really, we're going to release one. We released one already. The other one's going to come out within a couple of days. Uh, and it's me and Jeffrey is the, Jeffrey Smith is a psychiatrist, but he's also the head of the special interest groups on consensus in psychotherapy integration. Marv Goldfried's a founder of the psychotherapy integration um, movement, and I'm president-elect. And so we then met as leaders and we delineated uh, areas of consensus okay, on, across a number of different domains. So we had the first thing we got consensus on was consensus about what psychotherapy generally treats. Okay? And we identified that as entrenched maladaptive patterns. Okay? Uh, so essentially, you know, ineffectiveness that you're trapped by you know, and then in other words, you're channeled into, that's what makes it entrenched. And then a sense that I can't not do this at some level. If you could just not do it, then you would just not do it. <laughs> and you wouldn't come to see a psychological doctor, but there's something about that. And then normally the thing that is about is that the different modes of being in the world and your learning and your defenses and your coping create an intersection between trauma, power, threat, uh, adjustment, conflict, uh, that then drive the system into a polarized kind of way of responding, you know? Uh, so you get threatened and these people are ogres and then you resent the ogres and then you transfer. And so you attack these people as a function of this old and you can't unlearn it because you're kind of defended and you say, Hey, well, that's just the way it is. And then your defensive structure, and now you keep repeating itself and your heart feels that there's a potential in you that you could grow. There's a sense about the way in which you could get return on the way you are and grow positively. And you're frustrated and, and dissatisfied with that and maybe demoralized and you come to see a psychotherapist. At least that's the classic uh, cluster of neurotic conditions. Uh, and I, I think you absolutely nailed in terms of sort of like the failure to use your brain effectively. You know? Yeah, I think that's a slide deck that I have. Um done by Jeffrey Smith. Mm. Um, it, it goes through the very things that you're talking about. And it makes such immense sense to me that um, it's really liberating because I don't have to live in this fog of wondering, gee, why do people do that? Why did I do that? What the heck is going on here? There's a way out of that. Right. And, and of course, we have to work on autopilot in many ways. I can't get up in the morning and decide, oh, how do I tie my shoes? How does that done? You know, I did that already. I didn't find it very helpful. I learned how to tie my shoes. I don't need to do it anymore. But if I get old enough, I won't be able to tie my shoes for another reason. Maybe arthritis or Parkinsonism or something. I'll use those zip, not zip ties, but the Velcro mm -hmm, straps. Mm -hmm. So I can learn a new behavior. But, but I have to recognize that, gee, I can't tie my shoe anymore. It, it just isn't working. So right. get another shoe, guy. It's, it's, to me, it's the same way with psychotherapy for the non-psychotic conditions. Yep. 
And when I look at psychotherapy for the psychotic conditions, what they're trying to do, I think, I have never done it, I think is trying to get the person to understand when they start to go awry. And I'm reminded of um, the movie about the um, mathematician. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name right Sure, now. John Nash, a beautiful John mind. Nash, exactly. And how he was, in fact, a schizophrenic. And that when he was in control of his schizophrenia, he did just fine. His mathematics was world-class, no, Nobel class. But when they looked into what he was doing off secretly in his little hidey hole, that was clearly schizophrenia. He was really out of touch with reality. But as I read about him, um, particularly when he passed away, it became apparent that he began to understand, okay, when I do this, I go off the deep end. I need not to do this. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I don't really have any control over whether I will do it or not. It's going to show up, but I have control over deciding to do something else. Uh -huh. I can't change the fact that that possibility came up. So until we understand more about the psychotic conditions, then we're, we're kind of stuck with that. Here, I'll give you some, some tricks you can use to avoid those traps. Yeah. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> but what it means is that people like Jeff Smith and yourself are looking at what is it that we do when we heal a person's mind or help them to heal their own mind. And those underlying principles are applicable to us who aren't psychotic and aren't neurotic enough to need therapy, mm -hmm. at least not right now. <laughs> Can't guarantee you about the future. Um, and what it means is that we're getting a, a look into what is it, a bigger look into what is it like to be a human being? Mm. I find it really fascinating that only about 1%, 1 to 3% of schizophrenia occurs amongst people in the world. Mm -hmm. That's a very low number. Mm -hmm. That means that 97 to 99% of brains develop normally. Okay, let's say the others like... Uh, major depressive disorder and a bipolar disorder and prep things like autism. Let's change it to 95. 95% of the brains work. Now, show me something in biology where 95% of the time it works. Mm. <laughs> That's not usually true. Mm. Mm. Usually there's a range of things, how it works. In fact, as far as I can tell, there is nothing in biology. There's nothing in the human being which is categorical. Blood pressure, we like to say, oh, well, it's 120 over 80. Hmm. Yeah, that's what we said is normal because we need to have something that we call normal. But if you carefully measure, you find out there's a wide range of normal. My wife has a blood pressure range because she's an athlete, which is not considered normal mm. for her age. 
Mm-hmm. Mine is considered normal for my age because I take blood pressure medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what's, I don't know of anything in human biology, which is categorical. Everything is categorical. You look at livers, there's pretty wide range of appearances of livers. Sure, we get far enough along the range we say, okay, that's abnormal. Mm-hmm. But there's a big range of normal. Yep. And I think the same applies to the human mind. And I, I look back on my life and I, I try to figure out what did I do? Why did I do it? How did I end up where I am here right now? Where does it appear that I'm going? It has to do with understanding not just the biological, physical world of being a human being, but also the mental world of being human. That Mm -hmm. package is one. Mm -hmm. So I'm a strong proponent of the four E's. Mm -hmm. My brain is centrally involved in being a human being, but not solely involved. Mm -hmm. My feelings are going to be expressed through my hypothalamus and my autonomic nervous system and behavior as well, obviously. My thoughts are going to be influenced by what I feel, what I, what I think, mm-hmm. um, how I behave is going to control my thoughts, or at least influence my thoughts. The world around me is going to influence my thoughts. Also, the way I see the world around me. So I'm a strong believer in part of the soul is what uh, Radcliffe refers to as existential um, the word escaped me. Sorry. Um, okay. How existential view of the world? What is our personal existential view of the world? Yeah. And what he means by that to me is, okay, how do I feel and think when I am in the world? Mm. When I perceive the world, how does the world influence me? Mm-hmm. How do I react to it? Uh Not only how do I perceive it, but how do I react to it? And we can be in control of the things we do automatically, 95% of us, if we want to. Uh That's pretty hard to do in, for me at least, in the pre-tree of knowledge world. Uh That that was a, a big challenge, putting together the, the human being as an existent physical biological entity uh-huh. and the human being as a mind behavioral cultural entity. Right. How do those go together? Yeah, they go together quite nicely, actually. Uh-huh. There's a downside. The downside is that you are responsible. Uh-huh. You can no longer blame the other for everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> does come with some responsibility doesn't it? it it does but it comes also with a prize and the prize is freedom mm. you are no longer have to be captive to your maladaptive behaviors whatever they are mm. now maybe the maladaptive behavior is smoking mm-hmm. you can if you want figure out okay why am i doing that you can get help for stop doing that and doing something else that is more healthy that's a pretty simple, simple sure. thing to, to talk about. 
talking about a neurosis, maybe like uh, obsessive compulsive behavior, that's going to be more difficult, but it can be done. Mm -hmm. And it can be understood. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm too far along in my career. I'm too old now <laughs> to go back and do a psychiatry residency. Mm -hmm. But as I look back, that's, this is where my, my life path led me. Right. This is where I got. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm so appreciative of people who write books about um, the, the big five, the tree of knowledge, um, who look for the underlying principles in psychotherapy and who are interested enough to share them that people can use them in their lives. I was going to go to that um, CEPI group mm -hmm. that was going to meet in November. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the darn virus, it yeah. got called off. <laughs> but I'm going to watch for that uh, blog that you're talking about. I, I saw the first one, actually. I haven't watched it, but I, I saw the, the reference to it. I'm going to go back and watch both of those. I think mm. for me, it was really powerful what Jeff Smith did there. Mm -hmm. He really brought things together, and it became, for me at least, proscriptive. This is something you can do, you can use, rather than prescriptive. This is not something you can do. This is something mm -hmm. you must not do. This is something you have to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, there's a lot of freedom in that. Yes. I get to think about that, and I get to decide, okay, yeah, I want to do that. Mm. that's a different world than the modernist world I grew up in. Mm. And the modernist world that I grew up in said, well, you grew up and you go to high school and you go to college and you go to do some sort of postgraduate training and you, you get a job and you get married and you have kids and you die. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's an interesting description of a pathway. And then the postmodern world came along and said, oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think so, and tore it apart. And I see the postmodern world as being very productive in the sense that it got us to be mindful about the modernist view. Mm. But it didn't help us to know what to do instead. Mm -hmm. It just said, yeah, that's your idea. Well, here's why it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. and darn few explanations of here's how you could make it work better, friend. Right. So when I, when I came to Lena mm -hmm. and her modern, meta modernity, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that really struck a, a, a chord with me. It said, yeah. look, Everything that we have gathered in our culture mm. is of value to us. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I have to pray to rocks. Mm. It means that I do need to understand that I am part of uh, the whole called the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do have a responsibility towards it. The same way that, gee, in our cultural structures, there are hierarchies. Maybe we don't need to make them 
as structured as pre-modern, but we need to recognize that there are hierarchies. Mm-hmm. That some people know more things than other people. Mm-hmm. Some people do other things better than some people. That means we can get help from them. It means that we can give help to them. The, the modernist, for me, point of view is helpful in the sense that, you know, if you're going to do something in this world, make something on yourself, do something, learn something, mm-hmm. act, <laughs> behave. And the postmodern world to me says, but think about what you're doing now, mm-hmm. because it, nobody has the link to the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. So all of those fit together in a package as well. So I agree. When you look at meta-modernity and the tree of knowledge and the unified approach and mindfulness and meditation and metacognition, that all forms that package for that person, that being that I seem to be searching for Mm. throughout my life. Mm. What is it like to be a human being? There is, in fact, something what it is like to be a human being. My perception of it may not be quite the same as yours, Mm -hmm. but there's an awful lot of overlap. If my perception is too different from yours, then, okay, we may just have a difference of opinion, or one of us may be off kilter. Well, most of the time, it's possible for us to recognize um, we differ. And mm-hmm. it's okay for you to believe what you believe. It's okay for me to believe what I believe. We do need to work together. Mm-hmm. As you were, were talking, you I was, as you were talking, I was reminded of our of the podcast uh, sort of axiom, which is that we are in search of a coherent naturalistic ontology to revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. And it sounded like you actually laid out pretty nicely some of the ingredients uh, for you in relationship to that potential task. And and I recognize they are ingredients. At this point, what I recognize is the major ingredients. There's probably a whole bunch of other things that I haven't even thought or begun to think about yet. But knowing those major ingredients is a powerful tool to me. Mm. And actually, I, I wish you would write that down what you just said as an axiom and send it to me because I, I think that's the, the sort of axiom that I am looking for. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful way to put what took me 10 minutes to say into a few words. Well, I appreciate your, you know, you laid out the puzzle pieces, I think in a really, really nice way. And, um, this brings us to, you know, kind of where, as you look out at the horizon uh, and start thinking about kind of where we are, giving your wisdom, Waldemar, are you <laughs> optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you mixed in relationship to sort of the human condition as we find it here in 2021 uh, on, the, on this, you know, rock in the solar system in this Milky Way galaxy? What's your, what's your assessment of where we are? What's your sense of your future and things like that? Well, my answer to your question is yes, <laughs> because I'm all of those things. Okay. I'm optimistic because, gee, Merry Christmas, I now understand these major building blocks. Let's do something about that. So mm. I can do that in my life. I can take care of the world around me. 
to the best of my ability. I can be a responsible steward to my world. I can see other human beings as other persons rather than other. Mm. I, I think that's one of the things that I learned growing up. I, and I didn't realize that until just recently that my view of the other is apparently far more inclusive or democratic or whatnot hmm. than what most people have. I, I see mm -hmm. the other as equals. Yes, hmm. a, a range of a, a array of equals, but I believe very strongly in the, the American idea that all men and women are created equal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are created equal. And so I have to keep reminding myself that there are those who really see other people as other. Mm. That helps me to understand systemic racism in our country. Mm -hmm. It it now helps me to understand the things I saw as a child and which mm -hmm. have continued to trouble me throughout my life, such as people being tied up to posts and whipped. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what to do with that as a kid. I still sure. don't, <laughs> but I understand it a little bit better. That doesn't condone it, but I understand. Of course, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I am also, scared, if you will, yeah. because in our country, at least, and apparently in major parts of Western Europe, about a quarter to a third of people tend towards authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When, when our previous president was running for president, I thought, He's not going to get elected. Nobody's right. going to go for that. Nobody's going to fall for that BS. He got elected. Yeah. Well, then I thought, yeah, but there are so many safeguards. It's not going to make that much difference. It's going to be four years of, you know, biting your tongue, but it'll get over. It was far worse than what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. It left far more stains on our national person mm -hmm. than I thought. And that is frightening to me. Mm -hmm. It's frightening because that's a large number of people, mm -hmm. a large number of people who, as best as I can understand it, are so poorly educated. I won't say they're stupid because there's no evidence that they're stupid. Yeah. It's not that they're incapable of rational thought. They are capable of rational thought, but don't have rational thoughts because they don't have the underlying tools with which to have a rational thought or the means by which to in involve rational thought, mm -hmm. or at least not enough. How do we get around that? Well, the typical way you get around that with a two-year-old is with time and teaching, mm -hmm. with communication. Mm -hmm. How are you going to communicate 78 million people into something different? Mm -hmm. I think as adults, we're not going to. Mm -hmm. It's simply not going to happen. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to wait for these people to pass. I, I don't call upon them to pass. I don't want any of that. Sure. 
sure. but for their point of view to become part of history. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm encouraged okay. at the same time that I'm discouraged. And yet I keep coming back to being more encouraged than discouraged because people like you and Jeff Smith and Lena, Aline, pardon me, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Mescola, I just read his article about the academia mm. and its soul. And there are people working hard to provide another generation with another way to think about the world in which we're trying to exist. We've got to get busy pretty damn quick about not destroying our planet. Amen to that. Amen to that. As, it's, as, it, as you sit in record heat over there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Trying Is there any, uh, so that, that gives us a, a, a broad landscape. Was there any, any particular topic you'd like uh, to touch in with me about in relationship for the listeners to hear about, or do we, were we able to cover um, what you were hoping to get to? Well, you know, I, th I think we really did cover it. Um, I, th I think for me, the, the way of thinking and the language that goes with it, that's really important because now I understand what before I sort of categorized in a big, all-encompassing lump as the human condition mm -hmm. really has at least two parts. One part is what does it mean to be the biologic human? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what does it mean to be the mind cultural human? And, and that somehow, I need a new term um, for putting those two together. Um, and the only thing I can come up with at this point is, well, that's the point of view of what is it like to be an effective human being? Mm. <laughs> Great. Yes. Well, somehow we have to figure out alignment between our place in the material world our living biology, our animal, mental, and cultural person modes of being. Yeah, and in order to do that, we've got to be able to talk about. It. When I when I see our mm -hmm. our congressmen and women meeting, mm -hmm. they they often skirt the problem of mental illness, and I think they're not funding it because, or at least not funding it enough because. They don't really understand it. And that's our fault. We haven't really adequately explained it. And, and so it's very reasonable from their perspective to say, well, gee, I'm really uneasy pouring a lot of money into this project that I basically don't understand what it means and what we're trying to fix. Yep. Yep. So, uh, but ultimately, I think that, Mano, we need to talk about it. And you talking <laughs> about it right now helps. Because uh, uh, I do think we, you know, um, the, the hope is, is that that alignment, we can go from the confusion of the enlightenment, which didn't know how to take the mental, cultural, and place it in proper relationship to the physical biology. I mean, that's the, that's the Moderna, you know, the modern science gets physical into biology really pretty well. And then it fucks up completely when it actually tries to afford, tries to apply the restrictive language of that onto whatever they were 
fooling around with trying to call to mind. Uh, and they either split it off to Cartesian wise, reduced it, uh, got into sort of German idealism through Kant. Um, but we're in a much better place now. We can actually afford ourselves a uh, uh, integrated epistemology uh, that coalesces around a shared ontology. And once we get that, we can understand then what is ineffective and then what is effective. And if we do that, uh, then maybe we can get this ship a bit righted. One other, a couple other things I'd like to add. One is that I would like people to understand that what I constructed or have constructed as the narrative of my life didn't occur back when I was 10 or 12 years old. <laughs> it's occurring now that I'm 80 years old. So it wasn't the sage that survived life. Mm. I survived life and am beginning to learn more. The other thing is that as a member of the executive committee of the Tree of Knowledge Society, I really view myself as, as the man in the street member. Mm. I have a reasonably good education. I did learn how to continue educating myself, but I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just a guy trying to learn the things that I didn't learn in the first 80 years mm. and apply them. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not 100% certain of that because I think you're more of a sage than you let on to be. But uh, the fact of the matter is that I appreciate that sentiment. And we are in the process of trying to find the right language, foster the right communication, and reorient meaning in a particular way. Uh, and I thank you for all that you do in relationship to that. I know you think deeply about these issues and, and, and are oriented toward them in, in a way that I could only describe as, as a wisdom orientation. So, uh, thank, thank you, Baltimore, for all thank for you for contributions and uh, and for all of our journey together in relationship to the, your participation in this project. I deeply appreciate. I am glad to participate and hope to continue doing so. And I will, in fact, continue writing on my tract about communication. <laughs> Perfect. All right, friend. Well, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks so much.